Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. We're going to be continuing looking in Mark's Gospel uh, this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 50. Jesus, actually from verse uh, 30 to 50, is really uh, in one lesson that he's giving the disciples, but there's so much information, we've broken it into a couple of weeks. And so we're going to be looking at Mark 9, 38 to 50. It'll be up here on the screen, and it's also in your uh, booklet, and you can follow along in your Bible. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 38. Hear now the word of the living God. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Uh, George Orwell wrote a couple of classic novels, but in one of them, 1984, which is a classic dystopian novel of the future, I actually just rewatched a movie that was made based on the novel. Uh, he tells the tale of a country known as Oceania, which is basically England and probably America combined in. And Oceania is at war constantly with Eurasia and East Asia. The people hear every day about the, the fight, and it shifts from Oceania to East Asia, but they'll, they keep saying, we've always been at war with whoever this nation is. But the other huge enemy in the tale of 1984 is a man named Emmanuel Goldstein, who does not submit to the principles of Ingsoc, English socialism, as it is known. And they regularly have what they call two minutes of hate, where they put his picture on the screen and everybody screams for two minutes at Emmanuel Goldstein because he's the horrible enemy of the state. 
But of course, as you read the novel, you discover the real enemy is the state. The real enemy is Big Brother, the ones who they are trying to convince everyone to love. And it's a classic move that Orwell is telling that we so often want to focus our hate at the person who's not actually our enemy. We get our focus off on the wrong thing. It is a, it is a classic way that dictators and totalitarian states, to get the people to not think about their own problems, they focus on other supposed enemies. Jesus points out today, that's not just something that totalitarian states do. You and I are tempted to do exactly the same thing. To have our focus on what's not our real enemy. So let's dive in and talk about this. Now this section begins with an embarrassing conversation. And it is really embarrassing for the Apostle John. Um, notice in verse 38, we, we see in our text that John starts out and says, Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and told him to stop because he's not one of us. Now remember, what we had looked at last week is Jesus had uh, announced to the disciples again for the second time his impending rejection, betrayal, death, and resurrection. And then the disciples' response to that, you remember, was they had a discussion as they were walking down the road, and what was the discussion? Who's the greatest? And so Jesus had said, you know, what was it you all were arguing about on the way? And they were embarrassed to say, and so Jesus says, I know what you were arguing about. You were arguing about who's the greatest, and let me explain to you who the greatest is. And he takes a little child, and he puts the child here, and he says, the greatest among you is the one who serves. The first are last, the last are first. The servant is the greatest. The greatest must actually be the servant. And you can tell where you stand when a little child that everyone else would ignore or reject comes into your midst. Do you receive them? Because the way you respond to the less and the least tells whether your heart is right. And after this phenomenal lesson, that's what John says. Hey, Lord, I have an application of that. We saw this guy driving out demons in your name and we made him stop. Or we tried to make him stop. This is what John thinks. Now, notice how ridiculous this statement is. Jesus has just been speaking of humility. He's just been speaking of considering others better than yourselves, of not putting yourself in the premium place. And notice what John says. We told him to stop. Why? Because he was not one of us. Notice it's not that he wasn't a follower of you, Lord. That's not the issue. He's not a follower of me, and that's a problem. That's exactly what is going on here. He was not one of us. If you're the kind of person that marks in your Bible, highlight that, circle it. Us is a big word. He's not one of us. But secondly, let's go back. If you remember just prior to them arguing about who's the greatest. When Jesus had come down the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember the disciples were in an argument there. They were having problems with the Pharisees. And what, what, had, what had prompted the problem? What were the disciples not able to do? Drive out a demon. So, you're, you think you're so great that he needs to follow you, but he's doing what you just failed to do. You were not able to drive out the demon. He is driving out the demon, but you're trying to stop him from driving out the demon because he's not one of us. And 
Thirdly, notice that the problem is clearly not the man's identity because how is the man driving out demons? He's doing it in whose name? In Jesus' name. It's not some, some other thing. So apparently this man is a follower of Jesus. We, we read in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 19, you can look up, there's seven sons of Sceva who try to use Jesus' name when they're not followers of Jesus and it doesn't work. Because if you remember, they say, you know, I, I cast you out, demon, uh, but in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demon says, yeah, well, I know who Paul is and I know who Jesus is but who are you? And then he ends up beating them up, you know, and the guys run out. That's not what happens here. This guy apparently is a follower of Jesus. And so he is actually driving out demons in the name of Jesus. He's doing it successfully. He's doing a miracle. But in the eyes of the disciples, there's a problem. And the problem is he's not one of us. And so how John thinks this is an application of Jesus' teaching about humility and servanthood is beyond me. But John proudly pipes up to do this at this moment. And we're going to see that even now, after Jesus rebukes him here, James and John, the next time Jesus announces his betrayal and death, James and John are going to come in and say, Lord, can one of us sit on your right and one of us on your left? They are struggling with understanding what true greatness in the kingdom is like. So John says this confidently, not expecting to be rebuked by Jesus, but notice Jesus' reply, do not stop him. Why would you do this? He's doing miracles. He is doing great works. This man's not doing evil. He's driving out demons. Why would you stop him from doing that? Do you want the demons to stay? And notice, secondly, don't stop him. Basically, he's on our team. He's not just driving out demons. He's driving them out in my name. He's not doing this in the name of a false god. He's not teaching false things. He's doing it as a follower of me. And so Jesus says, look, if he's doing this, what do you think he's gonna turn against me in the next minute when he's been actually in my name, doing these miraculous things. He's not. He who is not against us is for us. In essence, what Jesus is saying there in verses 39 and 40 is, John, he's on our team. It's the same team. Why are you attempting to do this? And I wish John was the only example of this, but he's not. This has been a problem for the people of God for a long time. If you go to the Old Testament, there's a, a passage that people can easily skip by because it's in the book of Numbers and Christians struggle a lot trying to read Numbers and understand, but it's an amazing story. God has told Moses, have 70 elders of Israel come up and I'm going to put my spirit on them. And 68 of the 70 go up. But two of them remain in the camp. And here's what happens in Numbers 11, starting at verse 27. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So these two guys didn't go up, and God had the temerity to think on his own and put the Spirit on the two guys, even though they were up on the mountain, and they start prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since you, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. 
Stop them. They can't be doing this. They can't be prophesying the word of God out among the people. And notice Moses' response. Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? See, that's what's going on with Joshua. Joshua's saying, look, it's one thing if the 70 go up and it's somewhere else and nobody sees and they get the spirit. That's not gonna diminish you in the eyes of the people. But these two guys are out in the camp and now everybody else knows that other people can speak the word of God besides you, Moses, and that's a problem. And so Moses says, are you jealous for me? And here's the heart of a true leader of God's people. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. See, Moses is saying, don't get jealous like I'm the only one can do this, Joshua. No, I wish it wasn't just the 70 elders, including the two in the camp. I wish everybody had the Holy Spirit on them. Newsflash, that Moses' prayer has been answered. Since the day of Pentecost, Moses' prayer has been answered. But notice, that's the, the way that Joshua was tempted to think. It's the same spirit that is affecting John. We are tempted to think that our enemy is other believers who are not part of our group and to spend our energy criticizing and fighting against them. But see, this is not the way of the kingdom. Because see, this goes right back to saying, I'm the greatest, therefore you need to be following me. I'm the gate through which God works. And if you don't come in through me, but see, there is a gate. Who's the gate? Jesus. It's the only gate that's needed. There's not another gate on this side of Jesus, but that's exactly what is going on. Now, let me be clear. We are to stand for the truth once for all delivered to the saints. There are groups that claim to be followers of Jesus while they are denying essential Christian truths. They deny that Jesus is God or they deny the personality of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we had creeds and councils. We sometimes recite the Apostles' Creed here and they can't do that. And we need to be clear about those things. But see, that's not what's going on in this text. It's not what was going on in Joshua's day. It's not what's going on with John. And it's not what happens today. The majority of fighting among Christians today is not over primary issues. It's secondary and tertiary things. And if you want a great example of this, go back to the year 2020 when COVID broke out. We have this on prime display. Believers were fighting and arguing over exactly how we respond to issues surrounding a worldwide pandemic. And guess what Bible verses they were using? None, because there are none. The real issue is, how dare you think you can think apart from what I say? That was all over the place. Churches were splitting because we were more committed to our social ideas than we were to our unity through Christ. This was, this was going on all over the place. We saw the same thing with with fine points of exactly how to respond to racism. And Christians who had been together for years suddenly wanted nothing to do with each other. They start writing blog posts about one another. They start arguing with one another publicly. And it has nothing to do with the truth of the Christian faith. It is rather down to these small issues. And like the man driving out demons, 
The tests of the last few years have revealed pride in our hearts. See, that's exactly, John is showing he hasn't understood the greatness of the kingdom because what he's saying is, is that man's not one of us. And if he's not one of us, then he needs to be stopped. And that is exactly what can go on. There's an old saying for uh, Christians that sometimes you'll hear it attributed to St. Augustine or C.S. Lewis or some other people. It's actually a Lutheran theologian in the 1600s that first coined it. The, the phrase is this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, which means love in that case. The the, the, that motto should drive our attitudes and our actions towards other people. That in essentials, the absolute things that th this you must believe if you're going to be a Christian, we have to have unity on those things. But the majority of what we're arguing about is non-essentials. And there's liberty there. We can disagree. Uh, I have the privilege of working with a lot of different churches and leaders in this area. We don't agree on all kinds of things, and that's okay. They don't have to be one of us. Now, that does not mean I don't understand what I believe. I understand what I believe very firmly. I can argue very clearly why I disagree with them on certain points. But you know what is central? They believe in Jesus. The, the, the groups out there are not our little group and then there's all these Christians that are secondary and everything else. You are in Christ or you are not in Christ. You, you are dead in your trespasses and sins or you've been raised from the dead by the power of God, given his Holy Spirit and you are going to be enjoying time in eternity. That is the distinction that is there in the scripture. But this has been a struggle for believers forever. So we need to please hear, and I'm not gonna, this is not gonna be part of applying the word, there, there's so much in this text, but our fellow believers are not our enemies. And they don't have to be one of us, okay? It is imperative that we understand that. I have been laboring the entire time I've been a leader in the body of Christ to try and build relationships with other believers and to build relationships with other churches. It is so important that we do that. And I wanna encourage you, don't engage in hypercritical criticizing of other believers in their service to Christ and don't support those who do. There are people whose entire ministry is built on criticizing other believers. And don't subscribe to their stuff. Don't click on their thing. Don't support them. Their gift to the body of Christ is not criticizing everybody else. That's not a spiritual gift. That's just them letting sin reign in their own heart, and we don't want to be part of that. And there's going to be plenty of opportunities that revolve around this, okay? There's all kinds of things. As Christians try to reach out to others, they're going to do things. And sometimes I look and say, I don't think that's the wisest way to do that, but my job is not to spend all of my energy trying to stop it. It may not be the way I would do it, but you know what? They're going to, I am certain of this, on judgment day, Jesus is not gonna look and say, this is a tough one, Brett, what do you think? Not gonna happen. He is fully capable of dealing with his own servants. My job is to do what he's telling me to do, okay? So this is an important thing, and that, 
That's where it kind of starts. Now, what Jesus says is, look, you've got your focus on the wrong thing because he brings the conversation back to the real enemy. It is easy to have two minutes of hate and scream about other believers because I can do that and avoid the real enemy, the real big brother that is within me, and that is my own sin. So notice what Jesus does. He shifts the conversation back. I can almost picture as John's going through this, Jesus just shaking his head because he goes back to the little child, okay? If anyone causes one of these little ones, he just, John, seriously, let's go back to the lesson I'm trying to teach. If anyone causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone around his neck, which is pretty bad. <laughs> Let me just say, that would be pretty rough. Tie a big millstone around your neck, heave you overboard. This is pretty much the end, okay? Uh, that's what Jesus is saying. He said, look, go back to the little child. And the little child here is both a literal little child, but the little child in this is kind of being used metaphorically for disciples. John, your job is not to stop other believers. It's not to cause them to sin. It's not to be out there doing that. And if you do that, you'd be better off if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you got heaved into the sea. And notice the issue is if you, they believe in me and you cause them to sin. Jesus is going to start shifting the conversation here to sin because that is the real enemy. The real enemy is sin in me. So notice in verses 43 to 48, I've got it highlighted here, sin occurs three different times. See, what John is doing, excuse me, John is doing and with the other disciples is they're shifting their focus to someone else, which is what we are tempted to do, okay? We, we would rather Jesus, I'm starting to feel the spotlight on me. This is uncomfortable. Let's focus on this over here. And Jesus is saying, no, the real issue is sin. It's not your brother in Christ. It's not your sister in Christ. It's not where you're wanting to go. The real issue is sin. And notice, it's not because John might pipe up and say, yes, Lord, and that's what I was trying to stop. I, I sense sin in that man's heart. But see, notice what Jesus says. No, I'm talking about your own sin. So notice he also twice mentions hands, twice mentions feet, and twice mentions eyes. He's saying, I'm talking about your sin, John. I'm talking about the thing that is going on in you. The sin is not outside me. My problem with sin is not other believers, nor is it even ultimately the world. And, and if we're honest, you can think of areas of temptation that are a real struggle for some of your brothers and sisters in Christ, but when the world offers that to you, you're like, get away. That's no temptation at all to me because the problem is not outside me. The problem is inside me. And so Jesus here says, look, if, if you have to, and notice he lists it, your hands, your foot, and your eye, hands and feet and eyes. My hands are the things that I do. My feet are the places I go. My eyes are the things which I choose to look at. And Jesus is saying, your problem is in you, and it, and it drives ever deeper inward into to where sin is rooted down in my heart. My problem is not just outward actions, but sin that is within me that is my real enemy. And it is so much easier as a believer 
and again, I tell you, you know, I've been walking with Jesus now for, I guess, 46 years, and you study enough theology, I can always come up and make it sound spiritual as to why I'm focused on somebody else. Because Lord, I want you to put, shine that light on them, Lord, not on me. Because we don't wanna deal with our own sin. But notice how seriously Jesus takes it. He, he's saying, you need to understand, John, th there is a danger, there is an enemy it's not where you're looking. It's in your own heart. And how serious is this danger? How serious is this enemy? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Your eye's making you sin, pluck it out. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is using hyperbole here, okay? He is using hyperbole here because the, God's moral law tells us not to maim ourselves, okay? But why is he using this hyperbole? What's the lesson? What does he want me to understand about the nature and the danger of sin? It is so great, there is no price too great to pay to stop sin in my life, to cut sin off from me, to make it where it is not going to be in me. So there is a real point here, don't make peace with sin. This battle is so important, it deserves my full attention. I've gotta be riveted on what it is I'm doing. If, if you go back and you remember World War II when we were at total war, how much attention were we giving to other things? Basically nothing. I mean, you know, you go back and it's like if you're gonna grow some vegetables in your backyard, you need to do this as a victory garden because we need every bit of, of resource we have to go into this battle. Jesus is saying World War II is nothing. You have an all-out war. That war is not against other people. It's not against your brothers and sisters in Christ. That all-out war is against sin in you because sin is trying to drag you to hell. And notice it's not popular today, but Jesus here brings up hell and he does it three different times. Very unpopular message, but let's just be clear. Actually, nobody in the Bible talks about hell more than Jesus does. It's just all over in his teachings. You cannot get around it. And so notice, he mentions hell three times. And then in verse 48, he's got this phrase where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's actually a quote from Isaiah 66, 24, okay? Where it says that at the end of time, you're gonna be able to go out and look and see those who are there in hell and the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Jesus is warning us of this. And he's saying, this is so important, John. You're worried about if somebody is doing something outside of you and there's good stuff going on and you're not getting credit for it, here's where you need to rivet your attention. There is an eternal hell. That's what needs to be your attention. There is sin in your own heart. And he's telling us that the stakes for fighting sin are eternal. This is, this is serious business. And this is what sin wants to do in us. Jesus then concludes in verses 49 and 50, and he says, everyone's gonna be salted with fire. The fire is an obvious link back to hell. 
And salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, the, the verse 49, which is unusual, everyone's gonna be salted with fire. I don't even have time to deal with it this morning, so I will in after hours. So if you wanna look on Tuesday, there's gonna be a video that'll drop and I'll take like eight or 10 minutes and explain what's going on in that verse. But Jesus has been talking about hell and the fires of hell, which are unquenched, and he says we're all gonna get salted with fire in one way or another. And the idea there, because he's shifting to salt, because notice in verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how do you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. So the focus is being shifted over towards salt, and what that is is salt is a sign of the covenant. Salt was used in all covenant offerings to God. I won't take time to put it up, but in Leviticus 2, verse 13, God said, you cannot offer any offerings ever without putting the salt of the covenant on them. There must always be salt. And Jesus is here saying, you're in covenant with me. You're my covenant people. You're to be an offering to me. You've gotta have salt. But here's the problem. Salt is really, really important in the ancient world but you would go to street sellers and guess what some of them might do when they would sell you salt? They would dilute it. They would put other junk in there because salt wasn't easy to come by and it was very, very important. And Jesus says, here's the problem. If you buy salt and the salt you buy is not salty, what can you do to make it salty? Nothing, you bought the salt so that it could salt other things, but the salt you got was not salty. It was fake, it was diluted, it was, it was not good salt. And so it's actually worthless. Not in this passage, in another time Jesus was teaching, he said, look, the only thing you can do with that is throw it out in the dunghill. It's no good at all. That stuff is a complete mess. And so he's letting the disciples know, look, you want to know what's going on here. You are the people of God. You are to have the salt of the covenant in you. And that salt is going to lead you to be rooting sin out of your own life. But if you're not doing that because you're so focused on everybody else and what you like or don't like about what they're doing, you're worthless. The, the very thing that's meant to be salty is now diluted, it's of no value whatsoever. You're gonna be spending your time policing others rather than letting the spirit root sin out of your own life. And so our lives are pleasing offerings to God when by the spirit I'm rooting sin out of my own life and notice how Jesus ends. Have salt in yourselves and do what? Be at peace with one another. So you weren't at peace with that guy that's not part of your own group, but the fact is, who else were they not at peace with? Each other, you've been arguing with one another. Oh, Peter, you think you're the greatest, but I'm the greatest. Jesus said, you, you, you've got it wrong all the way around. We actually learn in this very trip, I think, James and John, when they come into Samaria, if you remember, what are they, the Samaritans don't receive Jesus, and what's James and John's response? Yes, Lord, do you want us to call fire down out of heaven and consume them? They can't get along with the world. They can't get along with other followers of Jesus. They can't even get along with their own group. Because that wrong attitude, they're not following the ways of the kingdom. Okay? So, 
How do we apply this word to ourselves? And again, I'm not even gonna be able to go back and talk about unity with other believers, but I want us to think about this, this issue of sin in our own lives. First question, if you are here or you're listening, I wanna encourage you, have you actually looked to Christ for salvation? I know it is not popular today to speak about hell, but it's real. And it does no good covering my eyes, sticking my fingers in my ear and making a bunch of noise isn't going to stop the reality. Sin drags to hell. That's what it does. Jonathan Edwards kind of used this idea actually in some of his sermons. The most famous one of sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is a very atypical sermon for Edwards, but he talked about that sin is within us and it's like burning out. It's trying to reach out. The fire within me is trying to reach out to the fire with hell and just consume me. That's the nature of the way sin is within us. It is horrible. And there is no solution to sin other than Jesus Christ. The only solution to the penalty for your sin and mine is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no amount of anything else I can do. I can't fast enough, pray enough, scrub myself up good enough. You know, like the song we sang this morning, Lord, I need you. You're my one defense. You're my righteousness. Have you ever looked to Jesus Christ that way? It does not matter. I'm, I'm not asking other questions. I remember, I remember asking, I, supposedly my, my roommate uh, from first day, Philippe Summer at the Naval Academy, remembers one of the first conversations we ever had where I asked him, are you a Christian? To which he responded, I'm a Catholic. And I said, that's not what I was asking. <laughs> I'm not asking that question. Are you a Christian? Now, I lacked a lot of tact back then. Wasn't necessarily very wise, but he still remembers me pressing that point home because you know what? At the end of the day, I was right on one thing. I didn't ask if you were a Catholic. I didn't ask if you were a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church. That's not gonna cut it on judgment day. I am in Christ or I am not in Christ. That is what matters. Have you looked to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins? There is no other way. So if you have not, I urge you, look to him today. If you have not, come grab me and let's talk. I would love to talk more about that. Second thing, for the majority of us here who are believers, I wanna ask us the question that we need to deal with in this text. Am I rooting by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, am I rooting sin out from my life? If I am a believer, the penalty of sin, I'm, I'm not going to hell, that's not going to happen, Jesus is taking care of that for me. The penalty of sin has been resolved. But friends, sin is destructive. Sin is deforming. Sin will twist and ruin your life even as a follower of Jesus Christ. It is, it is just as terrible as Jesus says. Better to chop off a hand, chop off a foot, pluck out an eye, then let sin have its way in my life, even as a believer. But we often forget that. We play with it, we toy with it, we, we do this. And so you and I as believers are always called to fight against sin, to wage war against the power of sin, trying to deform and to entrap and to enslave and to destroy us. 
But there are good times. We, we're kind of looking in this season uh, of Lent and as we're heading towards uh, Easter, we're kind of looking in and saying there are spiritual rhythms. One of the rhythms right now that is very, very good for us is, Lord, I'm asking you expose sin in my life. I'm asking you reveal areas where I've just been letting sin stay there. I've been letting it work and rot away. Now again, here's the temptation when I start doing that. And I ask the Holy Spirit to reveal my sin and he starts revealing things that are not pleasant for me to see and hear. What do I wanna do? Look at, look at them, Lord, right? If, if you've ever been a parent and you catch a child, what's usually their first line of defense? Right, I mean, you remember in the garden, Adam, did you eat the fruit? It was her, Lord, okay? And then Eve, long before Flip Wilson and Geraldine says, the devil made me do it, right? We, we are expert at this from the garden. But that's not going to resolve. I can do all of that while sin is still distorting and deforming and destroying in my own life. Now, on top of our natural tendency, our culture today, we live in a cancel culture. And if you watch people, it's insane. You find something somebody tweeted 20 years ago or 15 years ago that's a little off, and people will pour wrath on them while they've got mammoth sins in their own life that they're ignoring. And we will, we will heap abuse on people from the past, ignoring any good stuff in their life and just railing against other things, all the while I'm just ignoring the sin in my own life. And you and I are breathing that air 24 hours a day. It's not just you, it's me. We, this is the culture we live in. Cancel culture says focus on anything everybody else did, even if it's just perceived that they did it, and come out with wrath on them, no possibility of redemption and atonement. But your own sin, well that's not really a sin. Okay, that's what we're being trained to do. And again, the church has its own version of this where there are people who believe their entire gift and calling from God is to constantly police other people. Okay, not our concern. Not what we are called to do, okay? So, in God's kingdom, as a lesson for disciples, my focus is on rooting sin out of my own heart rather than constantly focusing on what others are doing. So the question for us, as we're here and applying the word, are there any areas of sin that the Spirit is revealing to me during this season of fasting? I'm encouraging us every week to fast, again, both from food and even other activities. And ask the Lord during that. We fast from to feast on. As I'm fasting from things, both food and activities, to, to spend more time to, to ask God, to seek God, is the Holy Spirit revealing anything in my life where God says, are you aware you, you've made peace with sin? You've, you've accepted its reign in this area of your life. So what I would encourage you this week is as you're fasting this week, whether from food or an activity, again, ask the Spirit, consciously pray and say, Lord, I'm asking you by the Holy Spirit right now, reveal to me, are there any areas where I am 
walking in sin. And as he does, repent and say, Lord, get that out of my life. Lord, chop the hand off if you have to. Lord, pluck the eye out. I, I don't want this in my life. So that's one practice for this week, but I also want to encourage us as we're thinking through when you're aware of sin, and, and don't just think about big, huge things, public things. When I speak harshly to my spouse, when I say something I shouldn't say, when I have a wrong attitude, when I catch myself desiring something that I know is outside the will of God, this is not what God would have me to do, immediately confess it. Immediately ask forgiveness from God and if applicable, from the other person, okay? That's part of the rhythm. Getting into a rhythm of saying, I confess my sins, I repent of my sins, I ask for forgiveness from my sins. I want us to remember this week out of this text, sin is serious. And sin is deeply rooted in our hearts. I wish sin was a surface thing. I remember as a young believer, as I was changing, and you know, and I thought, man, I stopped smoking dope. I'm gonna be perfect soon. And then you discover, yeah, that wasn't really a big battle. <laughs> that was a pretty simple one. Pride, okay, getting angry at things that you have no right to be angry at. Okay, those struggles have taken a while to overcome. It is rooted deeply within us and it's deforming and destructive. So let's let the Holy Spirit work in us to understand a season of fasting and repentance and confession is good for our soul. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna come down to the Lord's table today. And this table, again, there's many things we can focus on each week. But it is a table of confession and forgiveness and strength. One of the things we do as we come to the table is we confess our sins. The scripture says that we're not to regard sin in our heart, we're to openly confess our sins as we come to the table. And we receive forgiveness of God, fresh and new. That we are consciously receiving from God that he forgives and cleanses our sin. But we are also receiving strength because I want to go out and root it out of my life this week. But I need strength. We don't do this by our own strength. It's the grace of God. It's the spirit of God. And so we receive that from him. So we're gonna come and confess and receive forgiveness. And we're gonna do something a little different today as we come to the Lord's table. In a moment when we pass out the elements, we're gonna play a song called Oh Great God uh, that's by Sovereign Grace Music, and it's based on an old Puritan prayer uh, in a book called The Valley of Vision that, that are these prayers. And it's about us asking God, Lord, I want you to wage war against my sin. I don't want anything left in my life that would resist your holy will. So when we do that, we're, we're gonna play it, and I, you're welcome to sing along. It's not that hard to learn this tune, but, but pay attention to those words so that as we come to the table, we can truly, freely confess our sin, receive forgiveness, and receive the Spirit's 
power so that this week we go out and don't say, Lord, you're going to be so proud. I spent all of my energy trying to stop somebody else from doing the good stuff they were doing all the while I was ignoring my own sin. But rather we can say, Lord, by your power this week, sin took a loss in my life. You were able to, to root it out. If you are here this morning as a visitor, I remind you, you do not have to be a member of our congregation. You simply have to be a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, which means exactly what I said at the beginning of applying the word. You know your only hope of salvation, your only righteousness is that of Jesus Christ. If you believe that, you are welcome to come to the table with us. If you don't, let it pass because this is a sign. In taking this, we're professing we are believers. And then again, talk to me afterwards. We would love to do that. Brothers and sisters, let us come to the table. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're gonna pass out the elements. I remind you to grab the two cups together as it comes forward. And if you need gluten-free, just hold your hand up. But other than that, we're going to go ahead. Danny's going to be playing song, and the lyrics are going to be up on the screen. And I encourage you either sing along or meditate deeply on what we are praying for the Lord to do. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Lord Almighty, God of our ancestors, you who made heaven and earth in all their glory, immeasurable and unsearchable is your mercy, for you are full of compassion, long-suffering, and you are very merciful. Lord, you have promised forgiveness to those who have sinned against you when they repent and confess their sins to you. Lord, the sins I have committed against you are more in number than the sands of the sea. I am not even worthy to look up to the height of heaven because of the multitude of my iniquities. And now I bend the knee of my heart before you, imploring your kindness upon me. I have sinned, O God. I have sinned, and I acknowledge my transgressions. Unworthy as I am, you will save me according to your great mercy, which you give to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Lord Jesus, Though our sins were higher than the heavens, and though we were unworthy of your love, you came to free us from our sin and to take us as your bride.
So Lord, our hearts overflow with thankfulness for your grace, mercy, and kindness. And we take this covenant cup now as a sign of our faith in you and as a pledge of our desire to follow you all the days of our life. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and let us cry out for God to work in us by the Holy Spirit to root out sin. Lord, like the disciples, we often prefer to focus our scrutiny on others while ignoring the sin in our own hearts. But today, we have been reminded of the seriousness of sin, and we long for your Spirit to root it out of our lives. Lord, we are grateful that our sins are forgiven, their penalty paid forever through the blood of Christ. But Lord, we want its power in us to be broken as well. And as those who have been bought with the blood of Christ, who have buried the old man in the waters of baptism, and who now freshly receive grace from your hand, Lord, we cry out, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Lord, let no vice or sin remain that would resist your holy war. As you have loved and purchased me, make me fully yours forevermore. You are worthy, O our God, to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, Glorify your name through me. If you agree with this prayer, let's conclude by saying amen. 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 Brothers and sisters, I encourage you now to receive the benediction, the blessing, and the power of God. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed with every blessing that God has. Go forth and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.